All right, we've been traveling through the book of Ruth, and we're in the second chapter of Ruth. And if you want to turn to page 1057 in your Bibles, I'm just kidding, that's what it is in mine. That's what it is in mine. Go to Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me read you a cool article that I stumbled across this week. It's from the Institute of Biblical Archaeology, I'm sorry, the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. It's entitled, Evidence for Ruth's Famine from Ancient Pollen. And if you're looking for ways uh, to, to uh, defend the Bible and, and maybe arrows in your quiver and your apologetics quiver, this is a really cool arrow that you can put in your quiver. Um, but this was published on August 5th of 2020. And if you recall, in the book of Ruth, famine is what took Naomi and her husband, what was his name? You guys remember? Yeah, Elimelech or Elimelech, God is my king, took them out of the land of Judah and into the land of Moab. It was famine, right? So it says here, I'm going to skip a bunch in the article. It says, pollen grains are remarkably durable. They're extremely distinct. And each, each individual plant has its unique fingerprint pollen form. And they preserve well over a millennia in lake or desert environments. The research team drilled sediment cores from the Sea of Galilee and the Wadi Zilim near the Dead Sea. Over the course of three years, researchers combined meticulously through the layers uh, they discovered that within the, peri within the period of 1250 to 1100 BC, the time of Ruth, there was a sudden dramatic decrease of Mediterranean trees that required large amounts of water, particularly pines, oaks, and caribs. In their place was a rise in the farming of dry climate trees such as olives, and the researchers identified that this as, a re as the result of repeat successive droughts within this 150-year period. This discovery matches up with the regional pollen samples dating to this period of Ruth, taken from Egypt, Syria, Cyrus, and Turkey. This fits with the wider historical picture. At the start of this period, a Hittite ruler wrote in the 13th century uh, to Pharaoh Ramsey II, I have no grain in my lands. Um, this, this time period from the 13th to the 12th century is known for the mysterious Bronze Age Collapse an upheaval of civilizations around the eastern Mediterranean basin. The Hittite Empire collapsed, the Egyptian Empire became greatly diminished, and never to rise to its earlier days of prominence. So there you go. Through the uh, examination of pollen um, and spores, uh, we can prove that there was indeed a significant drought during the times of Ruth. If you want this printout, it's first come, first serve. It'll be right here. Otherwise, you can just look it up. It's from the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. But I'll be right there for you guys. So let's review real quick, and I'm going to throw some questions out only to the youth here. I want youth, like if you're 15 or younger, try to answer these questions and see how well you do. Um, but number one, uh, what drove Naomi and Elimelech out of the land of Judah? What were the conditions that forced them out? Yeah, Hannah. A famine. A famine. Yeah, and what is a famine? It's a shortage of food. Where were they trying? You're frozen, by the way. Where, <laughs> where were they coming from when they went to Moab? What city? Biblical city, anybody? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means what? You remember Destiny? House of Bread. Yeah, which is very, very coincidental, right? I quote unquote, that they're going from the House of Bread to, uh, that was empty, it didn't have any bread, to now Moab, which did. So let's ask another review question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to some, some ladies on the front row here. Maybe I can. Get them thinking about it. What does Naomi's name mean? 
What does Naomi's name mean? Anybody remember? Okay, I'm going to go to the adults. What does Naomi's name mean? The pleasant one. And then what, what does uh, Ruth's name mean? The companion or friend one? Yeah, exactly. All right. Do we know how long they were in Moab? How long? Ten years they were in Moab, right? And does anyone remember Ruth's... Uh, let's do... Um, does anyone remember Naomi's son's names? What were they? Malone. Chilion and Malone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, um, we say it in Hebrew. What is it in Hebrew? Chilion and Malone. And do you remember, remember what they mean? The what? The, the sickly one and the one who's come to an end. Got that? Okay. Um, and guys, these names are probably changed by the author of Ruth. This probably wasn't their names. How do I know that? Because over in the book of First Chronicles, it names them, but it's different names, and they have more of a realistic meaning, probably, because they're probably not changing their name. They're not probably naming their children to the, the one who has an end, or the sickly one, okay? The author of Ruth probably took a little bit of liberty and changed their names as a way of trying to teach us something about this story. Is that bad? No, it's not bad to do because it's named over in First Chronicles. But sometimes people will say, well, look, there's an error. It's not an error. It's just the author is taking some. Who do we think is the author of Ruth? We don't know for sure, but a lot of, a lot of people speculate who? Samuel, the prophet. And I'm going to show you some more evidence for that today is why we think that. But in order to understand, I've been trying to answer this question with you guys. Is the gospel of the kingdom found in the book of Ruth? Is it alluded to in the book of Ruth? In order to understand that, we have to understand what is the gospel. And I kind of took for granted last week that all of you know 100% what the gospel is. And this word here, does anyone, are my Hebrew scholars want to say this word? Besorah. Besorah. And this is found in the book of Isaiah. But it's what we, you know, in, we translate to English, gospel. Gospel. In Greek, it's euangelion. It's the good news, the good news, in its most literal term, okay, the good news. What does that mean? I take it for granted. You know, many of us, we grow up and you hear, you know, Jesus died for your sins, accept him into your heart, and you can be saved from hell, and that's the good news. But is that all the good news? That's a component of it, that, yeah, you accept Yeshua as your Lord and Savior. He is your atoning work for your sin. You make a confession of that sin, and you profess him as Lord and Savior. But here's the gospel in a really, really, really small nutshell. You ready? That God wants to dwell with humanity again. That's it. Now, how do we fill in all of the... How does he get there? That's the kind of nuts and bolts of it all. All right? That's the nuts and bolts. But basically, in a nutshell, God wants to regather his people and a bunch of other people, and he wants to dwell with them. He wants to dwell with them. He wants to spend time with us. That's how he created us. That's the good news in a nutshell, is that God will do whatever it takes to create a space. And we call that space, that holy kind of space, we call that in Hebrew a machut, or a kingdom. God's kingdom will come to earth, and he will dwell with us. So I'm not going to get into all those nuts and bolts right now, but if you want a clearer definition, and Paul defines it for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Did I get it? 1 Corinthians 15. Look it up and you can see this is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. But we've got to understand, the gospel is God wants to dwell with humanity. 
Alright? There are people who accept that. Yes, I believe that gospel. There are people who do not accept that gospel. And all the things and all the pieces that make that happen, we're not going to get into in specifics right now today. But accepting Yeshua as your Lord and Savior is a huge part of that. Okay? But here it is used in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the Besorah, the good news, who publishes Shalom, and who brings news of happiness, and who proclaims Yeshua, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay? So the picture there that we see is a, is a herald coming down the hill and running towards the gates of the kingdom, and the, the people, the watchmen on the wall, see him coming, and he's saying, the king is coming, the king was victorious in battle. The king is coming. He's returning. And he enters and he tells everyone, he her he's a herald, right? And he's, his feet are beautiful for that. But that's the good news. The king has triumphed over death, over sin, and he's coming again. And you're invited into that kingdom. Amen. you got to come in through the door, right? And he says in the next verse, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing with joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord of Zion. There it is, there's the gospel. <laughs> but Bessorah. Now, there's two very big components to the gospel. Two very big components. Because we, without Yeshua, are in a state of exile, separation from God. Okay? And... This Hebrew term for exile, it's a very, it's a very Hebrew term. Um, if you get back into the, the Hebrew understanding of these big concepts, it'll make more sense for you, but where are my Hebrew scholars are? Well, it's right there, never mind. It's called galutz. Galutz. Have you ever heard of galutz before? Galutz. Yeah, the galutz is what we, what we say is exile. Exile. All right, that's separation from God's presence. Separation of God. It has two components. The removal from one's rightful land and also the scattering of the people who dwell on that land. That's galut. Okay, galut is exile. All right, and that's a very big and very prominent idea and theme in the Bible is the removal of people from the land and the scattering of those people into the earth. Make sense? Okay, so what's the opposite of galut? It's goel. Goel. And you prayed this a little while ago in the Amidah. It says that he sends a redeemer to his children's children. He sends a Goel. Goel means to redeem, to bring back, to purchase and to bring back. So two components in the gospel. Number one is the realization that you're separated. You're in Galutz, exile. And then number two is the realization that you have a redeemer, a Goel, and he can bring you back. And it's two components. The rightful, the, re the restoration into your land and the gathering of the people who belong there. It's the opposite. So galut, let's review. Galut is the, the scattering of the people away from the land. The goel, the redemption, is the gathering of the people into the land. Kind of two components. That is what the, the two major kind of compartments of this the Besorah, the gospel. Now that's, if I'm, if I'm a Hebrew reader of the Bible, and I'm reading it in its original language and context without any kind of bias or Sunday school classes or veggie tales influencing me, that's what I'm going to think about the gospel. That's what the earliest followers of Yeshua thought about the gospel. That we're scattered, but he's going to send a Goel, a Redeemer, and bring us back. 
And it just so happens that not only will he bring us back, but he will also bring many from the nations back with them. Those people we call goyim, Gentiles. And Yeshua says that. He says, I have to gather my sheep, but there are others that are not of this sheepfold that I must gather as well. Right? He'll bring the nations into his kingdom. That's the gospel. Not only is he, is he coming after his people and putting them in the rightful land, but he's bringing people in and grafting them into that people. He's expanding this concept of goel. I hope that helps a little bit. But Naomi, she is this, as these play out. Now, I want you to think about the book of Ruth. Have you guys ever heard of this term before? Let me come back real quick. Metaphor. You probably heard this in like 10th grade English. What is a metaphor? It's a thing regarded as representative or symbolic of something else, especially something abstract. Okay? A metaphor is a, it could be a story, it can be a saying, it can be an idiom, but it, you know that it is symbolic for something else. I want you to read the book of Ruth as a metaphor. Did these events really happen? It's very likely. <laughs> but if you read them in their most literal sense, and you miss the metaphor part, then you miss the story of Ruth. Yami, I want you to look at the metaphor that's beginning to develop here in the book of Ruth. And here is kind of the symbols that are being played out in the book of Ruth. First of all, Naomi, the pleasant one, she's turned bitter and hopeless, right? Remember that in chapter one, she's like, I have no hope. I've lost my hope. I lost my tikva, right? And then she represents in this metaphor of the story of Ruth, Israel in Galut, in exile, empty and feeling hopeless and alone and crushed. She left full and returned empty, right? You just remember that story? Or I used to say she left empty, got full, returned empty. That's Naomi. And she is a symbol of the nation and the people of Israel in this story. Very important we understand that. Next person in, the, in the, the line of events here is Ruth. Ruth is the friendly one. She's the clueless Moabite Gentile. Who does she represent? She represents Gentiles who come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. And she's somewhat clueless at times. Are you guys ever clueless at times like I am? That really trips us up sometimes when we come into this walk, into our faith, and we say, well, how much of Judaism do we adopt? How much of Christianity do we keep? How much do we say that we're Christians? Do we not say we're Christians? Do we call this a church? Do we call this a synagogue? Do we wear tassels? Do we not wear tassels? Do we eat this? Do we not eat this? Do we celebrate this? Blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on, right? And there's sometimes a little bit of confusion and we're trying to figure these things out. And we don't really know our place sometimes in, in, our, in, our, in this picture, in this metaphoric story of, of the Besorah. And that's okay. Because Ruth had the same problem. But we cling to Naomi. We cling to the God of Israel. And that's, that's our redeeming characteristic as a people. We cling to it. No, I'm going with you. Because your God will be my God. Right? And then we got Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He's the agent of Goel, of redemption. He's the one that, who can fix it all and then restore Naomi's connection back to her land and her people. You remember that? Naomi was exiled. She lost her land. She lost her family. But Boaz 
through Ruth, only through Ruth, can all that be restored back to Naomi. And who is Naomi a picture of? Israel. So let's back up. Through Ruth's attaching himself to, attaching herself to Boaz, then and only then can Naomi, the picture of Israel, be fully restored back into her land and her people. And I think Paul is aware of this. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says this phrase that until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Does that sound familiar? Turn with me to Romans chapter 11 real quick. I was going to take you there anyway. So, and A couple of people last week, they said, oh, we love it when you have lots of scripture references. And they, they gave me positive reinforcement on that. So I'm sorry if you don't like that. Romans 11. Look at verse 25. Romans 11, 25. Verse 24, let's start, Romans eleven twenty-four. For if you were cut out of what is uh, by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25, for brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed, but is now revealing so that you won't imagine you are more than you actually are. It is the stoniness to a degree that has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness, and that it, that it is in this way that all of Israel will be redeemed. As the Tanakh says, and he's going to go on and quote a passage there. So you get the connection there? So who is Boaz a picture of? He represents Messiah Yeshua. He's the linchpin that's going to make the one new man, he's going to create a one new man through his redemptive, redemptive work, and then he's going to allow both parties to experience redemption and restoration in the land. One of them has been there for a long time. The other one is kind of new to the table. <laughs> but that, I hope that helps you understand the book of Ruth. And I hope that you read Ruth a little bit better now through those, the lens of metaphor. Let me ask this question before we get into Ruth too. Are there any other books in the Bible named after a woman? Esther. And what's the context there? Esther is a royal Jew living in a Gentile world, right? What's the context of Ruth? She's a poor Moabite Gentile who then transplants to Judah. You see, it's interesting. There's only two books in the Bible named after women, and they kind of could be viewed as like a juxtapos juxtaposition of each other. What books are on either side? Now, if you have a Jewish uh, order of canon, if you have the Jewish Tanakh, where you have the, the order of scripture, you can answer this correctly. If you have a Christian order of scripture, a Christian canon, it's going to be out of order and you, you need to sit this one out. But what books are on either side of Ruth if you have the, the Hebrew Tanakh? Anybody know? Yeah. Song of Solomon. Yep. Perfect. You got it. Good job. Song of Solomon and Lamentations. Is that by coincidence? What is Song of Solomon all about? It's about God's love for his people Israel. It's a metaphor. It's this beautiful story about God, God and his, his love and the intimacy that he wants to have. What is Lamentations about? The sadness that he loves his people, but they don't seem to love him back. And then what's in the middle of those two? Ruth, a story of a kinsman redeemer, connecting the two and bringing harmony and restoration where everybody loves everybody. I think that's what's significant about it. Let's read Ruth, Ruth 2, 
And I'm going to offer commentary in between the verses here. And we're going to stop at 1230. We'll get as far as we can, and we'll just stop right at 1230. I know that, again, that's really spiritual of me, but we'll do it. The Spirit led me to stop at 1230, and I'll say that. No, everybody's attention span begins to kind of like wane a little bit about that time. Everybody's hungry. I see eyes beginning to roll in the back of their heads. and So we'll stop at 1230, if not sooner. Chapter 2. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. Okay? Now, they, they've come back to Judah, right? And uh, they don't know what they don't know to do. They don't know how to pick up the pieces or how to pick up the pieces. They come back to Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Now, this, this family member was a prominent and wealthy member of Elimelech's Mishpacha, his family. Now, Elimelech is dead, right? So picture this. It's Naomi and Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. Remember, Ruth descended from who? Lot sleeping with his daughters. Lot got drunk. His daughters took advantage of him. They are the Moabites. All right? So it's Naomi coming from a royal town in the land of Judah. She's coming back. She has nothing, no family. She's penniless. She's hungry. And she has this Moabite woman with her. But then there's this wealthy individual from her husband's Mishpacha, his family. His name was Boaz. But Ruth, the woman from Moab, said to Naomi, let me go into the Sadeh, the field. This is important here because Sadeh is where we get the name El Shaddai. El Shaddai is one of the names of God, right? My all provider. So again, look at this like metaphor. Look at it like metaphor. These are all symbols that, that the author is trying to share with us. So Ruth is saying, let me get closer to El Shaddai, the all provider. Trust me, I will go into the field, the Sadeh. And glean ears of grain behind anyone who will show me chen, grace, or favor. This is un unmerited favor. She answered her, go, my daughter. So she set out, and she arrived at the sadeh, the field, and gleaned behind the reapers. Now, these are the ketzorim. The ketzorim, this is a male, these are male reapers. She's using the masculine uh, noun, ketzorim. Now, ketzar means to reap. It means to cut something like a plant and to chop it down. But it could also be translated as to make lowly and discouraged. It makes sense, right? Oh, if I see someone that's really discouraged, it looks like they've been cut down, shortened. They're not standing very tall. They're discouraged. So you could also, if we look at this metaphorically, it could be like glean behind those who are lowly and discouraged. But she's gleaning behind them. So she happened to be in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz from Elimelech's clan. Let's pause here, and we've got to do a little bit of homework real fast. Turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19. Vaikra 19. Leviticus 19. And we'll see what's going on here. It's a little bit of a context. Leviticus 19, and go with me to verse 10. Leviticus 19, I'm sorry. Verse 9, Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 9. When you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, God is telling the people of Israel, don't harvest all the way to the corners of your field and don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Likewise, don't gather the grapes that are left on the vine or fallen on the ground after the harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Sounds like Naomi, doesn't it? Sounds like Ruth, doesn't it? Because I am Adonai, your God. You think God is telling them this hundreds of years prior? knowing that the events of Ruth will transpire? Probably. 
We've got a poor woman, Naomi. We've got a foreigner, Ruth. So, so let's go back to Ruth. So she happened to be in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, Elimelech's mishpacha, his family. When Boaz arrived from Beit Lechem, the house of bread, which is the royal kingly town, he said to the reapers, the Ketzorim, Adonai be with you. And they answered him, Adonai bless you. Now this is apparently a very common greeting that you would use the name of God in a greeting and you would greet each other. Kind of like in Israel today, or if you go to like an Arab-speaking country, you say Shalom Aleichem, and they say Aleichem Shalom. Or if you speak Arabic, it's like Salam Aleichem, and they say Aleichem Salam. Uh, that's like, that's the thing, you know, you respond with this. And that was a very common traditional greeting at the time. So we're going to go verse 5. Then Boaz asked his servant supervising the reapers, whose girl is this? All right. Now picture there's a bunch of men reaping, they're harvesting, and there's one woman out there. She's a foreigner. She doesn't really fit in. She sticks out like a sore thumb. But he says, whose girl is this? This is important that we understand this. Uh, is only used in one other place in the Bible when someone says something along these lines. And let me take you over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. Now Samuel was written by who? Yeah, it was written by Samuel. So go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're looking for this language, like whose girl is this? 1 Samuel 17, or whose daughter is this? 1 Samuel 17, and look at verse 56. The king said, find out whose boy this is. Now, who is he talking about here? David. What did David just do? He just slew Goliath. And the king says, whose boy is this? The king says, whose boy? And verse 57, as the king returned from killing the, the Philistine, as, I'm sorry, as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul asked him, young man, whose boy are you? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now flip back over to Ruth. Boaz says, whose girl is this? So only other place we see that in scripture, which lends credence to the idea that Samuel wrote this book. But it also, it's interesting because Samuel's trying to send, if Samuel wrote this, he's trying to send us a message, isn't he? There's a connection between Ruth and David. And we're going to see that come, come up much later. There's a connection. And it says, in, back in 1 Samuel, David answered, I am the son of your servant Yeshai from Beit Lechem. See the connection? This is all transpiring in Beit Lechem. And it says in verse 6, so we'll go back to Ruth chapter 2, verse 6. The servant, now guys, anytime in scripture you see an unnamed servant, who is that represent? Remember, there was one back in the story of, of uh, Abraham and his bride. Who does that represent? Yeah. The Holy Spirit. A good rule of thumb. Anytime you see an unnamed servant in Scripture, it might be a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, or you could say the servant, was watching over the reapers and answered, She's a girl from Moab who returned with Naomi from the plains of Moab. Verse 7, she said, please, let me, let me glean and gather what uh, falls from the sheaves behind the Ketzarim, the reapers. So she went and has kept at, at it from, all, uh, from morning until now, except for a little Shabbat in the shelter or in the habate, in the house. 
Now let's pause here and talk about the symbolism of this. So she's speaking to the servant here, and she says, please let me glean and gather. She's this uh, Gentile person who's kind of grafted herself into the, the Jewish people living in Beit Lechem. And she's like, I'll take whatever I can get. Now there was a man I knew, uh, I still know, in Uganda, and he was a Seventh-day Adventist. He grew up Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, he began to learn about some of the feast days. And he wanted to learn more and more about them, but he lived in rural Uganda. He couldn't do anything about it. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have things like this where he could get all this information like we do here. So he thought, the only thing I can do, Uganda doesn't have an Israeli embassy, but I know that Nairobi, Kenya does. So he got on a bus, and he paid his own money. He drove seven hours one way on this really crowded and dangerous bus to Nairobi, Kenya. He went to the Israeli embassy, knocked on their gate, and said, I need to speak to a Jewish rabbi. <laughs> and he spent, fortunately there was an Orthodox rabbi there doing some kind of services and things. And he asked some questions. He's like, you know, this rabbi was probably kind of like, I don't know who you are, what do you want to know about this stuff? You know, and he's probably a little bit weirded out by it. But this man traveled seven hours one way to get there and asked him questions about the feast. And what did he say? When will you return? When will you be back? He did this trip five times. Five times. And then started his own Messianic congregation, which is now our sister congregation, Beth Yeshua of Iganga, Uganda. And that certificate over there by Anthony on the wall was given to us from them, a, a, a certificate of appreciation from them, of, of us um, giving to them and giving them a Torah scroll and all this stuff. But Pastor John Swaga did this with his own resources, his own time, his own money. He's like, let me glean a little bit from you. Let me glean whatever I can get. And then it says here that except for a little Shabbat in the Habit. Now, how many of you, your first taste and your first eye-opening morsel of meat that you had with this walk was the Shabbat? And you were like, wait a second. When did the Shabbat get changed? Why do we worship? Why, what about the seventh day? Did that change? It says forever. What can we do? What can we not do? Let me just give it a shot. And call, I was speaking with a friend a couple years back at work, and he said, he said, let me tell you, let me, let me ask you, what do you guys do on Shabbat? You know, like, what do you, how did you get here? How did you get this point? And, and he, he admitted, he said, yeah, you know, I, I admit that, yeah, that doesn't seem like Sunday has a lot of biblical evidence for being the Shabbat, but I know that we're supposed to keep the Shabbat, and I'd really like that for my family because we're running ourselves ragged. And I said, you should do it. You should just try to keep Shabbat, you know, Friday night. Join my family for dinner and keep Shabbat. And he goes, oh, no, we're too busy. We're too busy to keep Shabbat. <laughs> okay, okay, I can't, I can't do anything with them. Sorry. But yeah, Shabbat, you know, it's like a little bit. Now, what is the, the metaphor, Habit? What is that a metaphor of? The house. God's house. The temple. So she's saying, he's saying that she only rested a little bit on Shabbat in the temple, in the house. And it says in verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth. Now Boaz is addressing Ruth uh, uh, directly now. Did you hear that, my daughter? Don't go glean in another field. Don't leave this place. But devach, stick here with my working girls. <laughs> he is diverting her to the female crew now. But he's saying devach, stick. This is the same kind of stick and the gluing kind of effect that we see in Genesis 2.24. That a man should leave his father and his mother and they, he should join his wife and he shall devak his wife, be glued to his wife, and the two will become one. 
He says, keep your eyes on whichever field the reapers are working in and follow the girls. I've ordered the young men not to bother you. Whenever you get thirsty, go and drink from the water and uh, go and drink from the water kelim, the water jars. Now this Hebrew kelim is very significant and a metaphor of, and it's used extensively throughout the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, for the articles of worship that are found in the temple. So he's saying, use the experience the worship that is found within the temple. Use the kelim the young men have filled. Verse 10. So she fell on her face and she shacha. She, she fell down flat on the ground. The significant time this is used. Go with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27. Jump back there real quick. And again, it's so important that we try to get to the original language because you lose so much if you, if you don't read it in at least some of the words in the original language because it's like a Wikipedia page that's happening right now with all these blue hyperlinks from story to story to event to event to theme to theme. And if you don't know those little hyperlinks and click on them, you miss it. So go to Genesis chapter 27, verse 29. Genesis 27, 29. God's talking to Abraham here. He says, May peoples serve you and Gentiles shacha bow down or lay prostrate before you. So God's saying this to Abraham. He's saying that Gentiles and the nations will come to your descendants, Abraham, and they will shacha, they will bow down. So now go back to Ruth. It says, verse 10, she fell on her face and she did that very thing. And she said to him, why are you showing me such chen or favor? Why are you paying attention to me? After all, I'm a neker. Now, neker is a very derogatory, derogatory term. It means someone who is a gross idolater, one who brings calamity, one who brings misfortune. She's saying, your translations probably say a foreigner. She's saying, I'm a neker. Why are you showing me such favor? But Boaz answered her, I've heard the whole story. Uh-oh. Who else knows the whole story? Yeshua. <laughs> Doesn't he? Everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died, including how you left your father and your mother and the land you were born in to come to my people, about whom you knew nothing beforehand, he says in verse 12, may Adonai reward you for what you've done. May you be rewarded and fooled by Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose kanaf you have come to take refuge. This is significant here. Anytime you see the wings of God, it's huge, it's significant. You know that God has like metaphorical wings. And he says, Yeshua actually says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my kanaf, my wings. Right? Like a mother gathers her hens. And she said, Adoni, my Lord, I hope I continue pleasing you. For you have given me nacham, comforts. Remember we said last week that nacham, na, uh, nachmu, the comforter, we sang it in a song today, didn't we? Counselor, comforter, keeper. That even in rabbinic literature, nacham or nachmu, the comforter, is a, is a code word for who? Mashiach, Messiah. So she's saying, you have given me Mashiach. You have given me nacham, comfort. You've encouraged me, even though I'm not one of your servants. Verse 14. 
When mealtime came, Boaz said to her, Come here and have something to eat and dip your piece of bread in chametz, the uh, like oil and the vinegar. This is what we remove from our homes during uh, Passover. She sat by the reapers and they passed her some roasted grain and she ate till she was full and she had some left over. How many of you, when you came into this faith and this walk, you ate until you were full? <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is, I cannot, I cannot understand all of this right now. My brain is like, I feel like I'm just learning so much and drinking out of a fire hose. And it says in verse 15, when she got up again to glean, Boaz ordered his young men, let her glean even among the Omrim. Now the Omrim, that's plural for the Omer. And the Omer is what we count leading up to the holiday of Pentecost. When we get to 50 Omer, it's Pentecost. He's saying, let her glean from among the Omrim without making her feel ashamed. In fact, pull some of the ears of grain out from the sheaves on purpose. Leave them for her to glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And when she beat out what she had gathered, it came to about a bushel of barley. And she picked it up and went back to the city, Beit Lechem. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and Ruth brought out and gave her what she had left over after eating her fill. Her mother-in-law asked, Where did you glean today? Where were you working? Blessed be the one who took such care of you. She told her mother-in-law, with whom she had been working, she said, The name of the man with whom I've been working today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Baruch hu le Adonai, blessed be, blessed he, blessed be he, through Adonai, who has never stopped showing his chasdo. We sing that in the Hodu prayer. Hodu uh, Adonai, kitov kile olam chasdo. Right? He's never stopped showing his mercy, neither to the living, the chaim, or to the matim, the hamatim. Who are that? That's the dead. Now, think about the story for a second. How has Boaz shown mercy, chasdo, to the living and to the dead? You could say, well, you know, Naomi, she's the widow. You know, it's honoring, it's honoring Elimelech, you know, and the two sons that died. But they're not experiencing any of this chesed. They're not experiencing any of this mercy. They're dead. But again, if you look at it metaphorically, again, Boaz is a picture of who? Yeshua. And what will he bring when he comes with him? Redemption. And we said it in the prayer earlier. The resurrection. He's showing mercy to the living and to the dead. Right? The resurrection. And Naomi also told her, the man is Karov. He's closely related. He's Karov Lanu. He's one of our redeeming kinsmen. Oh, there it is. Now let's go to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, 49. And understand what that means. Because I know you guys are like, oh, I know what that means. But there's people in the room probably that have no idea. What does that mean, a kin redeeming kinsman? Go to Leviticus 25, verse 49. And we're going to do our homework here and understand that a little bit better. I'm sorry, verse 47, Leviticus 25, 47. If a foreigner living with you has grown rich and a member of your people has become poor, like who? Naomi, right? 
and sells himself to his foreigner living with you to a member of the foreigner's family, he may be redeemed after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any karov relative, any near relative of his may redeem him. Or if he becomes rich, he may redeem himself. So there it is. There's the first inkling of this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Remember, in ancient Near Eastern world, your identity is wrapped up in your land. I said last week, you ain't no kind of man without land, right? <laughs> it's true in the ancient Near Eastern world. And I was talking to a guy uh, at, the, at Chris and Emily's wedding. He was going through his family's history with me. It was very fascinating. He was going through talking about his family's land just like 100 years ago and how they acquired this land and how that was so cherished within their family here in Alabama at hundreds of acres, you know, and I think it was hundreds of acres, but they kept it generation after generation after generation. They survived, they survived the, the Great Depression and through thick and thin, they kept this land and it was so important to them that they keep this land. And uh, over the course of time, you know, the family split up and they divided the land and they sold some of it and it just wasn't, it, wasn't, it didn't stay intact. But to hear him speak, you know, sometimes that, there's a relic of that still in the Deep South a little bit where you talk about the family's land a little bit. Um, but it's kind of lost pretty much in our culture now because there isn't a lot of big land owners nowadays. But um, that was the thing in the Deep South especially was you had a big family plot of land and you had a connectivity to that land. That was very much the case in the ancient Near Eastern world. You had a connectivity to that land. In the case of Israelites, you had a divine connectivity to that land. That was God's land, and he allowed you to live there. And so here, Naomi is saying, yo, Ruth, this is the guy that can get us back our land. He can get us back connected to the land that we lost. Right? Verse 21 says, but the woman from Moab, uh, Ruth, the woman from Moab, said, moreover, he even said to me to stay close to my young men until they have finished my harvest. Now again, that word harvest is ketzar, and it can mean reaping and harvesting, but it can also mean discouragement or lowliness, all right, humility. So think about this. Until they have finished their discouraged time, what brings discouragement? Exile, galut. Stay close with them until they have finished their galut and I bring redemption, right? You see how this is kind of playing out prophetically speaking, what this might look like? Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, for you to keep going out with his girls so that you won't encounter hostility in some other sade, some other field. So she stayed close to Boaz's girls to glean until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. What holiday what biblical feast day comes at the end of the barley and the wheat harvest? No. At the end, Shavuot. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. We call that sometimes the Feast of Ingathering. It's the, it's the summer harvest time. All right? So we know we can date this. And that's very significant, prophetically speaking. If we're looking at this metaphorically, Shavuot. And so she lived with her mother-in-law. Next week, we're going to pick up around the time of Shavuot, and we're going to learn a little bit more about how this story is going to play out. And um, this book, again, I don't want to abuse it by saying it's all metaphor, because it can't be all metaphor. 
How do I know that? Because Ruth shows up in the genealogy of Yeshua. Not to spoil the story. So if it's all a metaphor, how does she get there? <laughs> she has to be a real person. But I want you to read it literally, and I want you to read it metaphorically. Remember I said last week that Ruth is the most uh, unbiblically proportionate book that is probably the one of the most prophetically important books in your Bible. There's no Red Sea splitting. There's no miracles even. There's no uh, you know, great acts of God in this book. It's kind of just a quaint little love story. But if you read it in its proper, through proper lens, and you read it prophetically speaking, you'll see that this is a very significant book. And it, and it, it outlines the story of the Bessorah, the gospel. Your homework is to read Ruth chapter 3 and come with me, come with any questions you might have. We only got two more chapters in Ruth. And we'll pick up where we left off last week. Let's pray. And then we'll say blessing over the food together. Abba, Father, I thank you for this time where we can study your word. May it bring you glory and honor. Whatever we've learned today, may it bring you more fame. And may we be more in awe of you because of how you have preordained and laid out your mysterious plan of the gospel. And you have included us in that plan. We thank you for Yeshua, our kinsman redeemer, who shows grace and mercy even to us as foreigners to those who are near and to those who are far off. We thank you for his sacrifice, and it's in his precious name I pray. Amen.